Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. I'm going to ask David Cannon to come on up. This morning we do get the great privilege of uh, hearing our brother David preach. Uh, it's fitting, I, I want David to preach, and it's fitting that he's doing this on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, David was, has been in missions, and he honestly knows more about missions, or he has forgotten more about missions than I will ever know. I mean, I just know next to nothing about missions. Even this week, we had a long conversation on the phone, and just talking with him has just helped me think about these things. So, And I want our church to be more uh, aware of missions and have more of a biblical mindset on these things. So anyway, I think it's just fitting, and I'm excited about my brother. I'm excited about you preaching today, man. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. Thank you for David. I just We just pray for blessings on him. Uh, thank you for his, his faithfulness to you. We pray for, for him and, and Stephanie and their girls. Just bless them, and, and thank you that he's been willing to, to preach your word today. So we love you. We give this day to you, Lord. We give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we may bring honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Jeff. All right, am I on here? Good deal. Good morning, everybody. Um, it has been, I think, about two and a half years since I preached, so I've, I've, I'm feeling a little rusty. Uh, but, man, I, I really enjoyed uh, just preparing this week. Uh, I want to thank you all so much. I know um, uh, Mom and Dad are here and have been praying for me. Stephanie, thank you so much for um, helping to lead me where this needed to go this week in your wisdom uh, benefits our family so much. So thank you. Um, and other, other church members, I know James was praying and Jeff for that hour long conversation we had the other night when you had, I'm sure, way better things to do. Greg for praying. Thank you all. I, I, I did want to take this opportunity. Are we, are we filming, Josh? Okay. So I want to publicly shame Harry Davis if I can do that because I ran into him on Friday and uh, I, I'd mentioned to him that I was preaching this morning and I saw this little glimmer in his eye that said something to me like, I don't know if I was reading it right or not, but he said something like, Oh, all right, Cannon, you're preaching? Well, then I get to sleep in on Sunday morning. And so, and it turns out he's not here. So, Harry, publicly shamed. No, I'm just, I'm just playing. He, he had a long week, so uh, he probably needs some rest. Um, so, this morning, uh, I, there, there's, there's really a few things I want to do. But uh, I, I wanted to share um, just a brief story, kind of the start of, of my journey uh, interacting with what we call missions. Uh, back in 2009, I went on my first mission trip to India. Um, it was a very eye-opening experience for a lot of reasons. Um, the first day I got there, uh, I got H1N1, the good old swine flu. Um, I, feel, I feel a little thin right now. I'm like 6'4", and I, I think I'm right at about 200 pounds. When I got home from that trip, I think I weighed 163 so take 40 pounds off me right now. I, wa I was walking through the airport trying to find Stephanie. I walked right by her. She didn't even recognize me. So it was a really fun trip. I, I laid on this kind of South Asian version of, of some sort of couch for like 10 days, basically. Sweated it out. I had no, you know, smartphones weren't really a thing. Then I didn't have any TV. I didn't have any radio, a phone, nothing. Um, and so uh, really like the, the pretty much the only time I got to get out on that trip, um, I went one night with a team. And I preached, and it was to a village of about 1,300 people, and uh, it, it was shocking. Um, these 1,300 or so people are standing or sitting in front of me, and 
I'm preaching through a translator and I asked the translator to ask the crowd, how many of you have heard uh, the story of Jesus's life? And uh, we, were, we were really far out. We were in a, a, a pretty remote place, but when only maybe eight people out of the 1,300 raised their hand, I thought, I don't think they're understanding my question right. And so I asked the translator again, I said, are, are you understanding what I'm asking? And he said, you know, and all these people are staring at us while I'm asking him this. And he said, uh, yeah, you're asking how many people have heard of Jesus or heard about his life. And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, that's, that's what they answered. And listen, I was, I was born in Texas. I mostly grew up here in Georgia. My grandparents lived up in Arkansas. Every town I'd ever been in in my life had at least a couple Baptist churches, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, and maybe more, even if it was a little tiny town. Um, every class that I was a part of growing up had at least a handful of kids who were from a Christian home. Um, every business I'd ever been in had probably at least one or two employees, if not more, that were a believer. And so to be staring at this village where only a handful of people, uh, who we later found out had come from another village to hear the preaching, um, had ever heard of Jesus. I could not get my mind around that. It actually threw me off pretty bad and, and made uh, that sermon a little difficult. Um, just this, this state of shock that I was in. 2011. Um, so, uh, with that experience, a couple years later, I think it was 2011, Stephanie went to Bangladesh, which is uh, neighbors India, it used to be a part of India, uh, it's just to the east of India. It's about the size of the state of Arkansas. 160 million people. Uh, if you can imagine that many people in, in the state of Arkansas, that's like half the population of the U.S. living in the state of Arkansas. Pretty crowded place. Um, when Stephanie got home from that trip, I asked her what it was like, and she said, another shocking statement, she said, it's like a more crowded, more poor, more lost India, which I just couldn't believe. Um, we later found out through friends that moved there as, as long-term missionaries that there were only about 20 missionaries in the entire country. So do the math on that, 20 people trying to reach 160 million. Um, all these things started to open my eyes to the current state of missions and had me asking questions like, what is missions? Uh, which is one of the reasons why Jeff sent that email out asking y'all to think about how you would define missions. What is it? Uh, it? It started me thinking about how do we do missions? How do we, you know, what's going on right now in missions? How do we, how do we get this task more completed that God has given to our church? Um, so this morning I'd like to uh, begin looking at some of those things. I, I really want to uh, plant two seeds. I'm sorry, three seeds. I want to plant three seeds and spend just a, a short amount of time on these three things. Uh, and then I want to give some, some meat of the sermon here. Uh, the first seed is going to be the present reality of global missions. I'm going to give you all some statistics and stuff. Hopefully it won't be too boring. But really try to pay attention to this and really think about what all this means. Um, so in the Great Commission... Uh, we also see in Revelation chapter 7 this term uh, nations being used, okay? When we read that, we've read that the last few Sundays in the Great Commission, it doesn't mean Pakistan and United States and Mexico and Cuba. Geopolitical lines change, nations, geopolitical nations change constantly. And so Jesus wasn't telling us in the Great Commission, Mexico, Canada, uh, Brazil. He, he wasn't talking about that. The Greek term that's used there is ethne. Ta ethne, all the nations. And what he's talking about there is ethno-linguistic groups, ethnic groups, 
uh, in, in missions, the, the common term is people groups. And um, so basically what a people group is, is a distinct group that shares a common language or a common dialect. Uh, they share uh, similar food, a uh, similar way of life. What, is, what does work mean? What does death encapsulate? Uh, what is marriage? What is parenting? What is, think about anything, work. Think about anything that's involved in life. They're going to have a distinct way of thinking about those things that could be different from the next village down the road who's a part of a different ethnic group or a different people group. That's important to know in missions because you have to be able to contextualize the gospel and communicate the gospel and all its facets in ways that make sense to that distinct people group that might not make sense to the next people group right down the road. Um, a home-based example of this would be uh, the, the, the last few years uh, I've, I've spent some time in western Kentucky. It's mostly white, uh, either lower class or middle class people. But there's this people group that lives in western Kentucky called the Amish. And, if, and their experience of life is totally different. Um, the way they raise their kids is different. The way they work is different. They don't, they don't work to pay the mortgage and to save for retirement. Their working is providing their food and their clothing, and they do all that, uh, as, as you all know. So if you're going to try to present the gospel, if, you, if, if nobody in western Kentucky knew the story of Jesus, knew about the gospel, and you wanted to take the gospel to western Kentucky, you would have, a, you would have to have a different strategy to effectively communicate that gospel to just the, the, the regular folks like you and me that live in western Kentucky, and you would have to have a completely different strategy to engage the Amish of western Kentucky. Even though they live in the same country, the same state, and the same town, you would have to have a totally different strategy. This is important to know in missions. So these people groups, there are about 17,000 of them in our world today. So those nations, you know, if you're talking about geopolitical nations, uh, there are what, maybe 200 nations? I don't know the exact number right now because it changes so often. There are 200 or so uh, geopolitical nations in our world today. But the nations that Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission, there are about 17,000 of those today, 17,000. Of those 17,000, about 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. Now, what that means is their population is less than 2% evangelical Christian. That 2% number is not an arbitrary number. I want you to go back to the early 1770s or the late 1760s and this idea of the colonies breaking apart from England. Do you know what the percentage of people were that wanted to do that in the late 1760s? It's estimated it was about 3%. Sounds tiny, but 3% of a population can totally change the mind of the rest of the population. It's enough people to spread that message and to have a representative in, in most places where you go that's speaking that message and that believes that. We can look to more modern examples of uh, the BLM movement. We can look at uh, proponents of gay marriage 10, 15 years ago. It was, if y'all think about, you know, when you were born, the mindset about those things versus the mindset 10 years ago versus now and how, how rapidly that's changed, that's because of a very small population that was very vocal and very passionate and was able to convince a large chunk of the population that what they were going after, what they were pushing, was true and good, okay? So that 2% mark is, is pretty crucial. Uh, if you think about it in terms of, uh, I'll just give you two people group examples and I'm making them up, but if you had one people group that is 1% Christian and there's a business of 100 workers in that people group, you can guess that there's one believer out of that 100, all right? Y'all following with me? 
Think about how difficult it's going to be for that one lone worker in that business, in that people group of of 1% Christian, to convince some of the rest of their workers. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to feel all by yourself. Most people will anyway. You could maybe put a Paul in there and he's not going to care. But most of us aren't that way. Most of us are going to feel like I probably need to stay quiet or I need to be careful. Um, Compare that to another number that sounds small, but think about this. Bump that number just up to 5%. Now we're in a different people group that's only 5% Christian. It sounds small, but now we're working in a a business that's got 100 employees, same. But now we've got five believers. Think about what those five believers are going to do. They can meet with each other. They can encourage each other. They can study scripture together. They can strategize and talk about, well, hey, I think this lady is, is, would be open to hearing the gospel. All right, well, let's pray together for that. Let's think about how we're going to do that and how we're each going to plant seeds. Five is way stronger than one. That's a huge number compared to the one. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about unreached people groups, 2% or less. There are about 7,000 of those in our world today. Now, of those 7,000, About 3,000 of those people groups, this is where it starts to get shocking, and the first time I heard this, I was just thinking, there's there's no way. About 3,000 of those people groups currently have no missionary, no church, no scripture in their language, no church planning strategy even being developed. They they most likely, these 3,000 unreached, we call them unengaged unreached people groups, if you're born into one of those people groups, You will likely be born, live your whole life, and die, not just never having heard the gospel. You won't even, it'll be like going to Bangladesh and saying to one of these people groups, hey, have you guys heard of George Hull? They're going to say, well, no, who's George Hull? You could say the same thing to them about Jesus Christ, and somehow, even in our modern world, their answer is going to be, no, I've never heard of Jesus Christ. Never has crossed my ears, period. Um, of the roughly half million, million missionaries, we have about four to 500,000 missionaries on the field today, uh, worldwide. That's not just sent from the U.S. That, there's a lot of uh, missionaries sent out of Brazil uh, and, and a few other countries that are big mission-sending uh, countries. Um, of the half million missionaries, we have approximately 97%, 97% of our missionaries are sent to people groups that already have a large percentage of Christians. They already have scripture in their language. They already have churches uh, among them. There are believers among them. 97% of our missionaries go to those people groups. Uh, Many exotic sounding places to us contain already well-established Christian people groups. I want to use... um, uh, Uganda as an example, and I'm not, I'm not knocking anything. I just want to give some, some statistics here. I would say if you pay attention at all to missions, and there are other nations like this, you probably know of somebody who's working in Uganda, who's supporting someone in Uganda, who's maybe spoken at another church you've been to, who works in Uganda. Uganda is about 83% evangelical Christian, and yet we send tons of missionaries there. Um, now, obviously not all those people are, are maybe true believers, but even, even if half of that is just marginal and half are true believers, you're still talking 41 and a half, 42 percent. That's more Christian than we are. Um, so I want, you, I want our church to just think about that. Um, as, we, as we do missions, I know, I think our church supports, is it three missionaries? Um, three or four? 
So uh, I believe all of our missionaries are working among, among unreached people groups. So that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, oh, I'm getting lost here already. Um, but when you think about all those things, when you think about the, the, just the present reality of missions, how many missionaries are going to already Christian people groups, how many missionaries are not going to these, these uh, unreached or unengaged people groups, um, I believe these realities exist not because we have bad motives or because we just don't like lost people or anything silly like that. I think it's just a, an, an ignorance, and I don't say that in a pejorative way. I say that just in the, the emotionless definition of the word ignorance. Um, I don't think we uh, have a, a great biblical understanding of what missions entails and what it doesn't entail or shouldn't uh, entail as the, as the primary focus. Um, I don't believe we have a great biblical understanding of how missions should be done if you compare how, like, what Jesus was doing and what Paul were doing um, compared to, say, what Mother Teresa did. Um, those are good uh, people to contrast when you're looking at what missions should be and, and maybe what it shouldn't focus on. Um, first and foremost, though, and this is where Steph really helped me so much preparing for this morning, um, I don't know that that a lot of us uh, churches, and I, I'm, I'm speaking more the, the United States church, I'm not necessarily speaking like to y'all, like you guys are these horrible people that don't understand anything. Um, I don't know that we have a great understanding of why we should participate in missions, why that should be a cry of our heart and an active part of our normal life. Um, so that's kind of the present reality, that first seed I wanted to plant with y'all. The second seed I want to briefly talk about what is missions? Um, I would love to maybe do a sermon on this someday if y'all ever let me get up here again. Um, what is missions? That sounds ridiculous. I, I, I taught a class at, at our, our previous church on missions, and the first class, like the first week, we would always talk about why we do missions, which is what we're going to really focus on this morning. But at the end of that class, I would ask everybody to bring the next week their definition of missions. What is missions? Write it down, bring it to class. And the first year I ever did this class, uh, I, was, I was, again, shocked. I don't know why I'm shocked all the time. I must be naive. I was shocked at the huge spectrum of def definitions that were brought to class. Now, if you think about the vernacular of the church, when we say evangelism, probably all of us have similar things in mind. It's, it's these things are involved in evangelism. When we say baptism, we believe in immersion. We, we, we share these terms and the definitions. Now, when we say missions... And it might be this way here, too. I don't know y'all's definitions. Um, I had people bring to class, way over here, um, missions is everything that a Christian does. Okay? So missions is everything that a Christian does. And then there were a definition way over here and everything in between that you can imagine of missions is only church planting among unreached people groups. Um, now, I believe that missions is by far the most complicated thing that the church engages in. Think about how terrifying it can be to share the gospel here in our own town. All right, now you're a foreigner. Now you don't have your family nearby. You've taken, if Stephanie and I did this, we'd take Shiloh and Afton away from my parents, their grandparents. I think my mom would hunt me down and kill me. That's a reality for missionaries. Their home church is 12 time zones away. Because if you're going to an unreached, unengaged people group, you don't have a church. There's not one there. So now your support of your church home is gone. You don't have, uh, you can become friends. Jeff and I were talking about this. You can, you can become friends with the people there. I could, if I was a missionary in Bangladesh for 20 years, 
After a year or two, I'd probably develop some good friendships. But we're never going to talk about Texas Longhorn football. We're never going to talk about Atlanta Braves baseball and how Ronald Acuna is the greatest person that's ever lived. We're never going to talk about um, turkey hunting because there's no turkeys in South Asia. We're not going to talk about fly fishing because the water is not very pristine. Um, so all these things that are like very much a part of who I am is not going to be a part of my friendships. So I want you to think about how we use that term missions and the term missionary to describe this versus me going across the street to my neighbor Tom who grew up in the South, who's a middle-class guy, who's a Christian, and I share a verse with him. It's crazy to me that we would use the same term to describe those two very different realities. And it's not that I think that missionaries are better than non-missionaries, and it's not that I think that missions is better than what I would term ministry, but for us to not say that they're different is nuts, I think. And I think it's very important. Um, so again, we, we need to know what is missions? What, as, as a local church, as our church, what do we say missions is? That's going to influence how we do missions. It's also going to influence how we don't do missions. It's very, very important. Um, we don't have time to answer all those questions this morning, but if you want to do some reading on that, I, I challenge you to look at Paul's missionary journeys uh, throughout Acts. He does three of them. What is he doing? What is he not doing? Um, the definition that I have landed on, I'll at least share this with you all. It's not my definition, but I've adopted it uh, as my own. Is biblical missions, here it is, biblical missions focuses on primarily evangelism, discipleship, and church planting among unreached people groups. So I'm, I'm way over here on that definition. I think we should reserve that term missions for evangelism, discipleship, and church planting among unreached people groups. Okay? Um, now, what that, th there's a lot of things that aren't there, right? If you're focusing on evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, that means your primary focus is not going to be a lot of good and beautiful things. Um, that means it's not going to be an orphanage. Uh, and Stephanie and I have been there. That means it's not going to be a school. That means your main focus is not going to be a medical clinic or a hospital. Um, I hope I don't sound like a monster when I say that, but when you look at what Jesus came to establish, he said to Peter, Peter, you are the rock upon which I'm going to establish my orphanage. No, he didn't say that. He said, Peter, I'm going to uh, establish my medical clinic on you. You're going to be the rock of that medical clinic. He didn't say that. And that's important. That's not just something we should gloss over. He, wanted, he came to establish the best thing the number one thing, and that is the church. And so when we're looking at missions, when we're looking at what missions is and isn't, when we're looking at what missionaries do and what they shouldn't do as their primary focus, please hear me when I say that, as their primary focus, it's not that they uh, step over suffering orphans in the street uh, when they're missionaries. I'm not at all advocating for that. But here's the deal. When you focus on evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, and a church results... Now it's not just that missionary working, right? Now the things that God has decreed a local church to do, a local church is now present to do. And the missionary can focus on the task of the missionary and not try to be the whole church as one family or one person to an entire area and then get burnt out and then have moral failings and then come home. That's the reality. 
Um, and I could share all sorts of boring statistics with y'all on that. But I won't this morning. Uh, the roots to water this morning. This is, this is the meat. I really want us to look at why we do missions. Um, Chris, I think every song y'all sang this morning speaks to this, which I, I greatly appreciate. And I didn't send you these notes, so uh, I guess that was God pulling things together. Um, I had a friend that, that worked with us when Stephanie and I were uh, working with some of the ministries when we were on staff at our last church. Uh, and he reminded me of this a couple months ago. Um, we were having a conversation about this church. And uh, he said, do you remember a few years ago I asked you if you could, if you could go to a, you know, if, if there was like an ideal scenario for uh, doing missions or leading missions at a church, what would that be? And my answer was, I think it would be great. And this was long, but this was five years before we ever started coming here. Um, I said, I think it would be awesome to be a part of a small new church and be able to start missions efforts in a healthy way and not have all these things we have to undo and all these unhealthy partnerships and all this dependency that exists and, and all that. And, uh, and then he, he said, well, you know, maybe you, can, maybe you can help out at your new church. That He reminded me of this just recently and said, maybe you can help out, you know, your, your new church with this. And I said, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. So maybe this sermon starts something. That's my hope. Um, so why do we do missions? We talked about what is missions. We talked about um, the present state of missions, but if our motivation for doing missions is off, everything gets thrown off. If our motivation for doing missions is improper, um, I would even say even if, if our motivation for doing missions is good, but it's not best, then we're going to go off the rails at some point. We're going to hurt people. We're going to suffer. Uh, either way, doing missions, you're going to suffer. Uh, there's just no two ways about it. But there's a difference between purposeful suffering and purposeless, ignorant suffering. You guys agree? Um, so, with that in mind, I, I think the foundational piece that we need to focus on is what is our foundational motivation? I want to, just to put this in perspective, let's look at some possible motivations for doing missions. And don't think about this as like secondary motivations. Think about if you were to have one of these things as your primary driving your heart motivation for doing missions or being involved in missions. So what if your primary motivation was to seek and save the lost? That sounds good, right? Okay, that's not a bad thing. Um, what if it was to help the poor? That sounds nice. How about um, to care for orphans or to improve living conditions among the people that you're working amongst? Those things sound good. Those things don't sound bad. Uh, there is, I will show, share one with you I think is bad. Um, and I'm try, I told Jeff and, and Steph, like, y'all don't let me sound like the jaded ex-missions pastor. I don't want to sound like that. So, but, you know, there were a couple times in my years being a missions pastor where a parent would come to me and say, uh, you know, I, I really want my kid to go on a mission trip with you because I, I need them to see the reality of the world and come back and be thankful for all they have. And I was like, I was like, you know, I would, I would smile and say, okay, we can talk about that. But in my head, I was like, that is a terrible motivation for doing missions. Oh, my goodness. Um, but, you know, good intentions again. So, or what if your motivation, your primary motivation for doing missions was this? Uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Y'all know this verse. But it really is all encapsulating. And really think about this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. So when you come to church this morning, you might have the motivation of, hey, I want to get fed. Hey, I want to see my brothers and sisters. I want to, you know, um, enjoy being a part of a church. Those are all good things. But whatever you do, our primary motivation for coming to church this morning should be glorifying God. Plain and simple. When we get up and go to, uh, to, to work in the morning, we could have our motivation being using our talents, uh, earning an income for our family. It could be um, strengthening our community or strengthening our local economy. Those are all good motivations. But if we go to work tomorrow with the motivation of glorifying God, that's proper. That's what he wants of us. Whatever you do, going to lunch today, it's good to nourish our bodies, hang out with our friends and family, have good conversation, laugh. But even eating, drinking, going to lunch after church, uh, are we, what's our motivation? Is it those things? They're all good. But glorifying God is that number one motivation, or it's supposed to be. Um, likewise, when we engage in cross-cultural biblical missions, we can have the ultimate goal of seeking and saving lost people. But I want to tell you, I've walked with missionaries who are engaging unreached people groups. And when you're dealing with a totally lost, totally depraved society that has no inkling of this foundational Judeo-Christian worldview that we benefit from, you're going to get sick of those lost people. They're going to wear you out. They're going to hurt you. You could start harboring hatred in your heart for them. So your motivation is going to drive you away if it's improper. Um, if your motivation is glorifying an eternal, perfect, completely righteous, never fail you God, that's enough motivation to keep going, even when that people group pushes you to your very limit. We need to be reminded of God's glory regularly in order to actually remember that he is ultimate, don't we? Uh, I need biblical preaching every Sunday. Every Sunday. Um, God created preaching, didn't he? That was his design. Why did he do it? Because he knows we need it. Uh, to, to echo a fellow Texan, um, we can't get by as Christians on a concert and a TED Talk. We can't. You're fooling yourself if you think you can. We need God's word every Sunday. We need to be in God's word every day. When I'm not in God's word every day, I am not who God has called me to be. I am the only child standing before you in all of his selfishness. That's who I am. I need to be reminded of God's glory every day. I need to be reminded that he's great, that he has all power and all authority. And we'll look at that more in just a second. I need to be reminded that he's everywhere. There's not a corner of the universe where he is not present. That he's eternal. Time does not affect him or age him. It doesn't make his knees hurt like mine. It doesn't make his eyes baggy and puffy where I'm standing in front of y'all saying, I hope I can see y'all better and read my notes. Nothing affects him. Nothing changes him. I need to be reminded that he is good. I need to be reminded constantly that even though we see the world around us crumbling and all sorts of terrible things happening, that he is totally in control. We can trust him. And not only does he have all the power and that he's eternal, and that he's everywhere, but he's good. He's holy. We can trust that what he's going to do is right. 
But I want to tell y'all that I'm comforted, and I want to point something out here if y'all want to go ahead and turn to Matthew 28. Um, We've been doing, as our uh, corporate scripture the last few weeks, uh, the the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I want to start two verses earlier because there's a part there that just makes you kind of chuckle and cry at the same time if you really think about it. Uh, We'll start in verse 16. Um, I'm comforted by this. I'm comforted that everyone, even the 11 disciples, having walked with Jesus in the flesh, having seen him crucified and died a horrible, uh, non-ambiguous death, they knew he was dead, right? There was no mystery there. Like, if anyone was dead, Jesus was dead after the cross. They absolutely annihilated his body. And then three days later, they see him, And for the next 40 days, they get to walk with him and run into him. And yet, even this happens. Check this out. Starting in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Come on, guys. You know what, though? That's us. Does that not encourage you? None of us have seen Jesus in the flesh. None of us have lived with him and walked with him in the flesh. These guys did. We know they're knuckleheads. We've read the gospel stories. We've read about Peter failing a million times. We've read about the the zealot guys doing the zealot things and Jesus calling them out on them. We've read about Peter chopping the ear off and then turning into the biggest coward of all time. Just a total emotional roller coaster that guy must have been. But they're still champions of the faith, right? They, they did change after the resurrection and they saw who Jesus was, but even standing there with the glorified Christ, the resurrected Christ, but some doubted. Man, so we have no hope, y'all, in terms of doubting. Doubting is going to be a part. Maybe it's not always. Maybe it's just uh, at certain times in our lives or in certain circumstances. We will have doubts that enter our mind. That is a normal plight of the Christian because we're human, because we're fallen, because we have that sin nature. And Jesus knew this. Of course, he knew this. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all people groups, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, John Piper encapsulates these verses uh, into three little nice tidy sections. One, a lofty claim. Two, the last command. And three, a loving comfort. Um, Jesus reminds his disciples that all authority is his. They need to hear this. They need to know this. We need to know this. Now, I want you to think about how good of a God he is when you consider this. If you could quantify power and authority, and you could say there are a million units of power and authority, how many does Jesus possess? He's got all one million. Now, I want you to think about what you would do if you had all one million units of power and authority. What would you do with that? Without anybody telling him, 
without anybody suggesting this is a possibility, a possible ways, way to use this power, Jesus said, I have all the power, and how I want to use that power is to have you, my disciples, be my ambassadors among every nation, among every people group. That's what my power is going towards. It's not to, to conquer in a military way. Um, it's not to send his people out and have them mine all the resources out of the planet and to, to pull in wealth and to, and to store it up so that they could be a mighty, wealthy people. It's way deeper than that. It's to make disciples so that peace and love and justice and holiness and goodness can abound and can reign. That's the God we serve. That's what he does with all his power. That's a good God. I'm comforted that it isn't easy for anyone to keep that focus, to keep that primary motivation of God being glorified, even though that's our call. I'm comforted by that. The lofty claim, the last command. Because he has all authority, he gives his followers this final command. I want you to stew on that for a second. Last words are important. If, someone's die, if, if I'm dying and I say to Stephanie on my deathbed, Stephanie, um, I, I buried some, some, some gold, uh, <laughs> to use a family reference. Maybe my granddaddy buried some gold and then forgot where he put it. That's a different story for a different day but it's somehow true. Um, if I told Stephanie, Stephanie, I'm about to die. I've got 10 seconds left. I left this gold here for you. I need you to go here and dig it up so that our family can continue to provide for itself. Um, at what level of priority do you think she would place that? Do you think she would hem-haw about for a few years and do this and that? Or do you think she would go and dig up that gold for the treasure that it is and make use of it? That was my last words. It's the last thing I had to say to her. Jesus' last words to his disciples then and still to us before he ascended into heaven was, here's the job I have for you. This is not penultimate. This is ultimate. This is the number one thing that I have for you to do. Okay? It's not building the fanciest building you can build and say, everybody come here. Come into us. It's not doing a million other things. It's, I want you to go to people where they are. I want you to enter their lives, to sacrifice your life and enter their lives where they are and speak and live and show the gospel to them so that they can hear and know and it's good and some will be saved. We know that. We know that if we preach the word, not all will be saved, but some will. But it's required. It's the job that Jesus gave us. He told us to baptize them. He told us to, uh, this is kind of a big one, teach them all that he has commanded us. So we know that if you look through the Gospels, Jesus referenced explicitly almost every book in the Old Testament in those Gospel accounts. So when Jesus says, go teach them all that I have commanded you, what he's saying is that we as a people must take the whole Bible to the whole world. That's what that entails. It's not just a part, it's not just the New Testament, it's not just Psalms, it's the whole Bible to the whole world. The loving comfort. 
He doesn't leave us alone to do this job. This is a huge job. It is more than I can do or even wrap my head around. It's more than our church together can do. It's more than the global church all together and all focused together. As seemingly impossible as that might be, it's more than we're capable of. And again, God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. So he knows this. He knows it's too much for us. Yet he still tasked us with this. Thankfully, he gives us this loving comfort. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is the job I have for you, but there's not going to be a second where he's not going to be with us in that job. He doesn't need a vacation. He doesn't even need a Sabbath day. He doesn't need a coffee break. He's going to be with us every second from now to 2,000 years past to when the last word is written in the story of human history. He will be with us, his people, in doing this. So while this is a daunting task, he's good. And so he's not leaving us alone to do it. And he doesn't just give us a promise. He doesn't just give us, um, I'm going to send my, my word to be with you. He doesn't just say, I'm going to send encouragement to be with you. Or I'm going to send brothers and sisters to be with you. He says, I'm sending me to be with you. The God of the universe, that's who's going to be with you. What else could we need? If we see God for who he truly is, if we see him in his glory, if we're reminded of his glory and operate in that, uh, he will be enough of a motivation for us to say, yes, Lord, with your help, we can do this. We, we in fact, will do it. We know that the, at the end of all things, in the throne room, all of those nations, all of those people groups are there. We see that in Revelation chapter 7. They are there. We know they're there. So we know that God will have helped his people, us, to finish this mountainous task that he's given us. So this is the final seed I want to leave you all with this morning. Could our church, our little church in Monroe, Georgia, could we start to pray for God to direct us and use us specifically as one little body of believers to more deeply engage and, and see reached an unreached people group. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, short-term mission trips. There are a lot of bad ways to do short-term mission trips. There are some good ways to do short-term mission trips. It doesn't even have to be a part of the strategy. If it's needed, then it needs to be there. But imagine, I would be so jacked up, and, and maybe y'all would be too. Imagine if we, if one of these people groups that our, one of our current missionaries works among say, didn't have scripture in their language. And over the next decade, we could help fund and see to fruition the translation of the entire Bible into their language so that they have that blessing. Can you imagine how exciting that would be? That's not a six-month project. But imagine that. Um, what if our little church could encourage and send out missionaries to help some of our current missionaries where they are to engage that people group? What if we could support them financially, pray for them, encourage them through emails, phone calls, maybe through some of those short-term visits uh, if, they, if they need it and if they want it? 
That's exciting to think about, that God would, God would and could and wants to use, I believe, our little church to do that. So the seed is, would you start to pray about that? At lunch today, will you talk with each other about that? What, what would that look like for you and your family? Um, how could God use you? What talents have God, has, have, have God given you that could be useful in that effort? Could God use us not just here in our daily lives, in Walton County, Georgia, or Newton, or Rockdale, or wherever you live, but could he also use us to influence the eternity of a people group, a tribe, a nation that right now has zero hope. I I think he wants to do that. So please talk about that. Think about that. Pray about that. Um, If you want to talk through it, uh, talk with that, through that with me, I would love to talk through that with you. Um, It's something that uh, is, is very, very important. And it's also something, again, that's very complex. And it's not, it's not uh, exceedingly simple where we could just run into it. But the giftedness is here. Um, the opportunity is there. Are we going to jump at that? So, Jeff, if you want to come forward uh, and close us out. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, this church. Thank you for um, the word being preached, for the, the service of uh, the elders and the deacons and just the sweetness of our church body and uh, just how they encourage our family and Stephanie and me and our daughters. And um, God, I ask that you would uh, make clear in this area of missions what you would have us to do, how you would have us to do it. And um, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the, the, the perseverance and the passion for your glory to see those things uh, come about. God, give us wisdom and um, just increase our heart for you and our faith in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I I do want to encourage you, and I know you will, be praying about this. Uh, It really is exciting for us to think about, and I do want want to talk a lot more with David about this, just to glean wisdom from him about how we can, as a little church, be really effective in reaching out to unreached people groups.